Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Monday, April 1st, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Another woman has come forward with a charge against Joe Biden. This one specifically alleging that as vice president at the time, Mr. Biden rubbed noses with the woman who was volunteering for a congressional campaign. The woman, whose name is Amy Lapis, says to the Hartford Current, it wasn't sexual, but he did grab me by the head, which is not good. She goes on to say he put his hand around my neck and pulled me in to rub noses with me. A nasal nuzzle. This was in Connecticut, so it is the nutmeg nasal nuzzle. Or, here's an alternative theory I haven't seen sufficiently pursued. Joe Biden is actually an adolescent golden retriever. No, 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 no. He is a man who is sometimes inappropriate with women. He is too handsy or perhaps too nosy in this case. Although the Connecticut accuser, Amy Lapos, does go on to tell the current, quote, if Joe Biden truly supports women and gender equality, he would step aside and support one of the many talented and qualified women running. The same goes for the other men who have thrown their hat into the ring. So Joe Biden gave an unasked for Eskimo kiss. He definitely shouldn't have done that. I probably shouldn't call it that. But the conclusion is in 2009, nose kiss cut to, hey, Bernie Sanders, you should drop out of the race. Okay. I don't mean to diminish the Joe Biden inappropriate touching. If the women say that it was unwelcomed, inappropriate touching, that is the end of the story. It is unwelcomed, inappropriate touching. What I think is that voters should price that in and consider that however they can, if and when Joe Biden runs for president. Now, it should be noted that the most famous example of Joe Biden getting all gropey with a lady was when he smelled the hair and gave a shoulder rub to Stephanie Carter, the wife of Ash Carter, when Ash Carter was sworn in as Secretary of Defense. Some propagandists did Photoshop that picture to make it look worse than it really was. But what it was, was, in a word, kind of weird, except for Stephanie Carter who wrote a post on Medium saying of that shoulder massage thingy, quote, the Joe Biden in my picture is a close friend helping someone get through a big day for which I will always be grateful. So as the sole owner of my story, it is high time that I reclaim it. And Lucy Flores is the owner of her story, which was the Biden shoulder rub, hair smell, head kiss. And she does rightly so lay claim to her story. Now, a week or so ago, I opined that Joe Biden was getting unfairly tarred for the 1994 crime bill because that was, and I will argue this, I think the case is very strong that the 94 crime bill, though derided now, was at the time a necessary response to a horrific problem that, by the way, had big public support and big support in the black community. And it did have some really bad secondary effects. I acknowledge that too. So that's one example of Joe Biden getting... I don't know if you want to say smeared, but getting some guff for his past. But this is a little different. There's no defending Joe Biden smelling a person's hair who doesn't want her hair smelled. But it's it's in a little bit of a different category. If you want to look at these pictures and hear these women's words or judge Joe Biden's handling of the Anita Hill testimony, 
which, by the way, seems quite harsh in retrospect. Fine, do it. Absolutely do it. It's not unfair. Different voters will ascribe different levels of offense or interpretation to all these head kisses and nose touches and hair smells. And by voters, I, of course, mean potential voters for this potential candidate, which makes this whole thing a potentially damaging story that's only potentially relevant in the first place. In the future, as I reflect on all this, how, how shall I change going forward? I vow to ask permission before touching your shoulder during a photo shoot. Also, I am now going to hereby issue my personal policy on nose touching. Don't ask to do it to me. I will never ask to do it to you. Also, you should know my hair does not have a smell one way or the other, and I will be content to maintain my veil of ignorance regarding yours. On the show today, I spiel about a special lady who's been tasked with an Olympian effort, selling Donald Trump's policy on the Special Olympics. Interesting wrinkle. It's not even his policy anymore. But first... One of the great thriller writers of our era is here. He's back. The third novel in the Cartel trilogy is out. It is a book that couldn't not be written as its author, Don Winslow, found out. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Don Winslow is the author of, I'm not going to say every book, but so many books. And his latest is called The Border. It is part of the Cartel series. The first was The Power of the Dog, and then was The Cartel. Don was here to talk about this. And now, The Border, you add them all up. It's approaching 2,000 pages of sprawling, epic fiction, masterpiece, thrilling statement about today's society and the so-called war on drugs. Hello, Don. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Tell me about, because as you were writing all of these books, there were other books that you were also working on, or at least uh, the, the cartel didn't come out one, two, three in your oeuvre. There were other books in between. There were. You know, I, I, it's a little sick. I typically write two books at the same time. So when I'm when I'm typing one book, if you will, sort of actively writing it, I'm researching the next one. So yeah, I did a book called The Force in between about NYPD, between the first book in this trilogy and the cartel. I wrote a book called The Winter of Frankie Machine about the West Coast mob. I wrote a couple of surfing novels, you know. So of course you did. I, yeah. I did. I switch it up, you know. So in this book, it starts off in Washington in April 2017, and the events of the book, I wouldn't say closely mirror real events. I would say 
are very much on the news except for the actual proper names being changed. For instance, your Donald Trump character, whose name is Denison, I believe he literally gives the Mexicans are coming over our border and they're sending us rapists. I believe he gives that. Well, how close to word for word is the speech your character gives compared to the speech Trump gave? It's pretty close. I did some changes, you know, but look, I mean, I write about our times and and it'd be stupid to pretend that, you know, our president was Martin Van Buren or, or FDR or anybody else. Right. And, and also what uh, the real point of that, though, is that, you know, my main character is in charge of the DEA. So what a presidential candidate and later a president says about Mexicans in the wall directly impacts that character, how he does his job and what he's supposed to do, you know. So it wasn't just a toss from left field. It was directly relevant to the story. Oh, absolutely. And in the book, Obama is the president and he actually pardons uh, a character. And then the next president is this uh, John Dennison character. And he's tied up with Deutsche Bank. But his son-in-law's money goes through the uh, the narcotics game as opposed to maybe or maybe also, though, it's just not mentioned the Saudi oil game. Yeah, look, I mean, fiction and, and crime fiction, particularly, you know, one of the major questions is what if? And I, I still try to deal with the plausible. I try to write close to the bone, but it asks the question, what if drug money came into that situation? What would happen? Yeah. And I don't know. I, I don't know that if you had asked yourself, what if the real situation that's going on now with 666 Park Avenue and with Saudi, the Saudi money, I don't know that you'd be able to come up with better or more interesting twists and turns than we're actually seeing, by the way. Yeah, it makes fiction harder and harder to write, you know, because things now are so surreal that writing realistic fiction, you, you just feel like you're kind of behind the wave you know, every right. day. So I suppose that's why character must be really important to you because you're not a prisoner of the wave or the real events or even your concocted events. Like it will always be interesting how your characters, as you've breathed them into life, react to these events. Well, no, that's exactly right. You know, because the books are character driven and and I want to ask questions about, I mean, the book's called The Border for a reason. Obviously, it's about the physical border between Mexico and the United States, but it's also about internal borders. You know, what what ethical, moral, political, relational, if that's a word, borders are we willing to cross? And, and if we do cross them, can we cross back again? And for this central character in this trilogy, Art Keller, I think that is the question. The heroin trade, it's a book about drugs. So, of course, the heroin trade is going to be huge. And it's changed from your first two books in the series. So in when you were writing, so Power of the Dog came out when, about 2012? Uh, no, 2005, I think. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. that's right. Long that's time right. ago, man. I've been on this beat now for 20 <laughs> years. You know? So so where was heroin or where were opiates in the consciousness of drug fighters and the drug uh, and drug kingpins back when you were writing that book and when that book hit shelves? Relatively low. Really, all the, the attention was on cocaine and then slightly later on meth, on methamphetamine. So cocaine was the, you know, the crack epidemic. Everyone was talking about coke. Everyone was trying to stop coke. Heroin had taken very, very much a, a you know, back burner place, both among traffickers and among the anti-drug people. And where... Where was the heroin trade in real life when the cartel came out? Again, it was low. Really, you're talking more about coke. 
What happened with the heroin epidemic is that the cartels lost so much money on marijuana, which had been a profit center because of legalization in certain American states. Their, their uh, marijuana profits dropped by almost 40%, almost literally overnight. They had to replace that. They saw that they had a ready-made market of opioid addicts in the United States created by addiction to pharmaceutical pills that they could undercut. You know, they could sell, they could get an addict high for about a third of the cost of an, a pill of Oxy or, you know, Vike or whatever you want. And and so they started, again, growing the poppy and, and harvesting opium. Uh, and now it's become the major profit center. Yeah. So in earlier books in the series, you get inside the machinations of the Sonola cartel. And they don't exactly create the demand, but they do what they can to stoke it. If you were to do that with this book, you'd have had to have taken us into the boardrooms of pharmaceutical companies. And I was wondering if that was a temptation. Yeah, it was a temptation. It absolutely was. But the book is a long book now. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, it is. And, <laughs> and if I'd gone there, there, there would have been no control, you know. And so I had to be, you know, disciplined in some areas. And basically, you know, the story that I've been telling is about this guy Keller, and it's about the drug lords, and, and in this book about heroin addicts and cops and, you know, immigrants. And so, you know, there had to be some limitations somewhere. I want to ask you about your techniques of plotting and planning. Okay. So when you're, did you know it would be a trilogy from the get-go? Absolutely not. I, <laughs> I, uh, it's embarrassing. I, I swore after the first book, Power of the Dog, I would never go back to that world again. And, and then I found myself kind of sitting on the sidelines watching everything get so much worse than we ever imagined in our worst nightmares, you know, down in Mexico with the violence. And I thought, I could explain this to a reader, and I'm not doing it. And so I wrote The Cartel. After Cartel, again, man, I was done. You know, I, I promised myself. I promised my wife. You know, I promised anyone who'd listen, you know, strangers passing by, you know, that, that I wasn't going to write another one of these. And then you know, ended up writing The Border. So it was not only was it never planned as a trilogy, it was never planned, you know, as a second book even or a third. So this is a supposition on my part, but if the current president were not the current president, if he had ran and it had flamed out, would that motivation be as pressing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I mean, there are a number of things that have happened in, in, in the past few years, and, and they're obvious. We, we had the, the heroin epidemic blow up on us, and, and I have felt that in, in, in very personal ways. We had immigration become an issue again. Mexico then experienced its two most violent years since they started keeping track. And we had this political change with the current administration coming in. Now, certainly that, that added to my motivation. I will not deny that. But I was already writing the book before that happened. How much going back to the first two books did you do to see characters that you had forgotten about or <laughs> ideas you had that weren't pursued or if there were unanswered questions with one or two of the non-main characters a lot a lot mm -hmm. I, I, uh, I found I had to keep both the two previous books on my desk while I was writing this one and I was always going back going yeah I'm like is that guy alive uh, you know, what did I say right, about right. him on this page? You know? Wait a minute, did I change his hair color? No, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, uh, wh how old is he now? You know, and so I had to do a lot of that. 
one thing that's changed uh, with the world beyond the politics and drugs are just the public's or at least uh, noisy members of the public's appetite for what might be seen as politically incorrect portrayals of characters that aren't the of the author's background. Yeah. And if people don't haven't read it, all of your characters, no matter their nationalities and ethnicities, are really dealt with empathetically, and they're not always kind characters. So they're sometimes horrible and barbaric, but they seem really fleshed out and really humane and I have no criticism there. But externally, you know, it's a different time and people might have different sensitivities. Do you think that played into, in any way, any way that you constructed anything in the later books as opposed to the earlier ones? No, absolutely not. Look, if if I followed that logic, right, hmm. then really the only book I could write would be about a middle-aged white writer. <laughs> and I don't want to read that book. Never mind write it. You know, and and when we talk about cultural appropriation, I think Philip Roth was writing that book over and over again. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> uh, uh, all cultures appropriated, with with very few exceptions of maybe a few peoples in the rainforests in Brazil or New Guinea somewhere. Mm-hmm. All culture is appropriated. We borrow ideas and we borrow things from from other people all the time. So I, I don't think it's a valid criticism to say, well, you can't write African-American heroin slinger. You can't write a female heroin addict. You can't write a, a Guatemalan child because you are none of those people. I think the only valid criticism, the only valid question is, did you get it right? Now, I, I'm willing to accept criticism if people say you got it wrong. That's a fair criticism. You know, yeah. I think I think we could have that discussion, but I I frankly am not going to let anybody tell me what or who I can write or not write. Yeah, I think that also if someone were to criticize you and you did get it wrong, I don't know if it would be a defense, but it's certainly true that you could point to the mountains of research that you employed so as not to get it wrong. It's not like you were guessing and guessed wrong. Well, no, that's right. And I've spent a lot of time with these people. But, you know, the other thing about getting it right or getting it wrong is the world's a big place. You know, when I wrote The Force, the book about NYPD, I'm writing about um, corrupt cops in an elite unit. There are 38,000 New York City police. So some of them would recognize that experience and others would not recognize it and say it's wrong. You know, so the world being such a big place, you know, there are a vast amount of experiences and and I'm tapping into some of them, you know, and some people might recognize and some they might not. Well, the one thing in the book that was kind of floated out there as an idea or hypothetical that I wished could have been a reality just because it is a novel and you could shape reality is your character has the idea for the real housewives of Sinaloa where they (laughs) get drunk and argue and then machine gun each other. I just wanted that to actually exist. I wanted you to have the script of an actual episode and maybe when the FX series happens, we can can actually see that on screen. I'm sure you can reach out to Andy Cohen and see if we can make it happen. (laughs) I I, I forgot I wrote that line, but thanks for reminding me. (laughs) It was really good. (laughs) This thing is the border. I say this thing. It is uh, the last third of these things. Can we just call it this thing? That would be all right. This thing. This thing of ours. This thing of ours. Don Winslow's The Border, part of the trilogy, along with The Power of the Dog and The Cartel. 
On the cover, Esquire says, one of the best thriller writers on the planet. I don't know why they have to qualify with one of. Thank you, Don, for coming by (laughs) again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy it. And now the spiel. Say what you will about the skill set of Donald J. Trump. It is clear that the president intentionally appalls a certain segment of the public, but it is not a randomly selected segment. He is happy to alienate and degrade his enemies, broadly defined as anyone outside the set of Americans already in his thrall, because not only does it not offend his base to appall those outside the circle, it to some extent is what defines who's inside the circle. But every so often, he miscalibrates. Yes, even a scientist like Donald J. Trump. And he does so through laziness or inexperience or inattention. And he winds up appalling not just the intended people, but also some of his people. Babies in cages, that was one such time. And Special Olympics funding was another. So what happened was that he sent his education secretary to Capitol Hill. And by sent, I'm sure he had no idea she was going. She was there, Betsy DeVos was there to talk about the budget. She met some members of Congress who wanted to talk about one specific, and to be quite fair, very small part of the budget. Small in dollars, but deep in resonance. And Trump does understand that. DeVos was there to explain why the administration wanted to cut funding to the Special Olympics and other programs for the disabled. Here, Representative Mark Pocan of Wisconsin found out she couldn't explain it. And then also in this budget, you have a $7.5 million cut to the National Technical Institute for the Blind, a $13 million cut for Gallaudet University, a $5 million cut for federal program for print books for blind students. Uh, And you recently had a federal judge rule against us on some areas around special education. I have two nephews with autism. What is it that we have a problem with with children who are in special education? Why are we cutting all of these programs over and over within this budget? Well, sir, we have continued to retain the funding levels for IDEA and held that level. So in the context I, I don't, of I'm a sorry, I don't think I brought context, up IDEA. I believe I brought up... He obviously did not bring up the IDEA Act. So why had she? I suspect it was because during DeVos's confirmation hearing in the Senate, the senators brought it up and they exposed that she was largely ignorant of how the program worked. Here, from that hearing is New Hampshire Democrat Maggie Hassan. I want to go back to the Individual with Disabilities and Education Act. That's a federal civil rights law. So do you stand by your statement a few minutes ago that it should be up to the states whether to follow it? The law must be followed, federal law must be followed where federal dollars are in, in play. So were you unaware when I just asked you about the IDEA that it was a federal law? I may have confused it. Indeed she had. So, like a good education secretary, she wanted to show off her education when under fire anew. Or maybe it's just that her brainstem is quite rigid and she now processes any threat as the opportunity to cite the IDA program. Well, that was not the correct response. In this case, it wasn't germane. Rep. Pocan let her know about that. I believe I brought up Special Olympics, Special Education Grants to States, the National Technical Institute for the Blind, Gallaudet University, Federal Program for Printing Books. So if you could address those, 
That's the question I would I will, really appreciate. I will address it. the broader question around. Or, or if you could actually address the question I asked. That's even a better way to answer a question. Supporting. Yes, that would have been better had she done it, but she was incapable of doing that. You can imagine that the secretary, who had been up to the hill in the past to defend Trump's budget, and also remember that those budgets have always called for defunding the Special Olympics, you could guess that she was surprised by all this. And perhaps she thought it was unfair. Maybe she thinks that all questions inherently of her are unfair because CNN caught up with the secretary and asked her some quite relevant questions and she just smiled at them eerily, a kind of crazy rictus grin, rictus, an abnormal sustained spasm of the facial muscles that appears to produce grinning, rhesus sardonicus, maybe caused by tetanus, strychnine poisoning, or Wilson's disease. I assume the federal budget zeroes out funding for Wilson's disease as well. I mean, he was a Democratic president. You have to undo his legacy, although he was also a racist president. So maybe it's a tough call. Anyway, DeVos seems uniformly overmatched in any setting that I've ever seen her in, aside from the slathering sycophants of CPAC. She shows no knowledge of policy and clearly has never had to defend her ideas in any kind of an arena. But she is the secretary of education which means that she is the one who gets cut off at the knees if Donald J. Trump deems it expedient, and he did. So Special Olympics funding is back. There. Everyone, let us hail the heroic first responder who was the guy dangling the baby out of the window in the first place. Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney acted as if it was all normal on the Sunday shows. Here he was on CNN. These debates take place all of the time. What did the president do? Uh, the president simply listened to people. That's uh, what he does. When the president realized that the public wanted this money, he made the change. This is what he does. It's his budget. Mulvaney portrayed this as totally normal, totally functional, and added... Yes, we have disagreements amongst ourselves. I hope that people would encourage that. We're not simply uh, running around with a bunch of yes people saying, you know, not discussing anything. We have real serious... We don't have a bunch of yes people. We have a bunch of yes until the president realizes what's going on, people. Really, it's not about yes people or no people. That's the wrong binary. It's about paying attention people, people like Mulvaney, and not paying attention people, people like President Trump. To be fair to the White House... Defending the Special Olympics, as I said, has been in every budget they've put forward and it never has been an issue in the past. Also, we should note the defunding, like actually less money, that actually never happened. Though with all that said, the budget is called a wish list. And it is kind of disturbing, isn't it, that what they wish for is to give less money to the Special Olympics? When you wish upon a star, construct a budget that's not bizarre. The entire lesson is an example of the public experiencing outrage once they're clued in to the true intentions of the Trump administration. But also, it's that the Trump administration is unserious or unable to make their outrageous intent an actual law. One cabinet secretary has been exposed as a piker, another pressed into mouthing falderall about what is and isn't normal. It's pretty typical or as we call it around these parts, just another day in that crazy, kooky, deeply immoral Trump White House. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who have this great idea. They think all the Democratic candidates should have a real housewives type opening tagline. You know, Amy Klobuchar saying, want to find out what happens when you defy me? Let's comb through the evidence. 
T.J. Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She thinks Elizabeth Warren should go with, I want to break up agribusiness, and I'll do it by getting all agro up in your business. The gist, here's mine. I'm Pete Buttigieg, but if you cross me, I become the Buttigieg and executioner. Boom, peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>